that documentary on Channel 4, which increasingly seems to be the channel that uh, likes to take a knock at Christian faith, entitled God Bless America with God on Our Side, attempted to explain what born-again Christians in America, those who apparently re-elected George Bush for another term, what these strange Christians actually believed. And one newspaper review stated with absolute incredulity that these Christians actually believe that Jesus will return from heaven to earth. Now the reviewer may be surprised to know that it's not just born again American Christians who believe this, but that it is part of the belief system of all Orthodox Christians. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, dating around 300 AD, still recited in many churches, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And if you happen to think this morning that the idea of Jesus returning from heaven to earth is incredible, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Christmas? I don't mean Christmas tree, Santa Claus, gifts, parties, fun though they may be, but what we celebrate at Christmas. Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that he came from heaven to earth a first time? If you do, what is so incredible about the idea that he will come again a second time from heaven to earth, especially when Jesus himself spoke about it on so many different occasions. And I thought it appropriate that after a year's series on the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, which concluded with the resurrection of Jesus, we should conclude this year by focusing on his return. This is the last Sunday of 2004, and so it's fitting, I thought, more fitting, that we turn to the last words of the last book in the Bible in which we focus on the return of the King. So let's read together Revelation 22. If you've got a church Bible, it's page 1250, but whatever Bible you have, just turn to the back and the final chapter. And let us hear God's Word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will see Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants 
the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the t- this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is God's word. Let's just bow in prayer and ask God to give us understanding of it. Lord, these are amazing words that you have entrusted through your servant John, your church down through the generations into the world in which we live. And as we examine them this morning and hear the message and challenge of them, we pray that that same spirit and the bride, your church, might make them clear and understandable to each one of us here, so that when he comes we may be ready. And we ask it in his name, for your glory. Amen. Now the word revelation, it's a Greek word apocalypsis, from which we get our word apocalypse, simply means to reveal something that is hidden, to unveil something, to uncover something that you cannot see. And this book reveals what you and I would never, even if we were the most brilliant minds in the world, ever work out for ourselves. Many people spend their time legitimately trying to uncover how the world began. This book tells us how the world will end. And no scientist will ever work that out. Would never have come up with these words written here. This tells us about the end of everything. And let me simply say from this chapter, let me focus your minds this morning, therefore, on five final things. Five last things which are revealed in this chapter. And I hope you have the Bible still open in front of you. 
first of all, the wonderful words of verses 1 to 5, which describe the final prospect. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, if not, I encourage you to do so. It's not an easy book to understand. But it's a book full of dramatic symbols and signs. It's a book about a war that began in heaven and spilled over onto earth. A book of terrible images, of devastation, of war and plague, of natural disasters, of international conflict. But after war comes final peace. Eternal peace on earth as it is in heaven. And that is what is described in these final verses, first verses of this final chapter. The images used there, and again if you know the Bible, are drawn from images that God revealed in the past through prophets, such as Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, and Zechariah. If you don't know anything about these prophets, can I encourage you next year, and on Sunday evenings, we'll be doing a series called Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets, taking one each of the twelve prophets, the minor prophets, and trying to unpack the message in them, interspersed with evangelistic third Sunday special services. More details later. But all that God promised through the prophets has now been finally fulfilled. But the most striking connection, interestingly, with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, with this final chapter of the New Testament, is with the very first chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And here we see in these opening verses the creation remade. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Revelation. If you've not got a book on Revelation, it's quite a good book to start with. Michael Wilcox writes, The first chapter of the Bible describes how God made the world. The last chapter shows how he will remake it. And instead of, the Bible says that at the present time, you know that your Bible, Romans chapter 8, it talks about the fact that the whole of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Groaning with frustration because creation has been frustrated in the purpose for which God has made it. Everything good. And it says those who belong to God, the sons and daughters of God, within us we groan longing for this day. Instead of frustration, this final chapter describes total satisfaction from the river of life. And this is possible because the curse has been removed. Notice verse 4. No longer will there be any curse. When Adam, the father of us all, sinned against God and went his own way, God placed a curse upon mankind. The consequences of disobedience. But that is now removed through the obedience of Christ. The second Adam, who redeemed us, says the book of Galatians chapter 3, redeemed us from this curse. The curse has been removed. I guess at one time it would be hard to understand these kind of images, but there's so many films around now that talk about this kind of thing, and I guess younger people have one more idea of that kind of thing. But a curse has lain upon our society, upon creation, upon every human being, and it has finally been removed. This is the end. That's a great prospect. Amazing prospect. See, without this kind of prospect, how is the world going to end? 
You just look at your television. I got up this morning and there's those terrible pictures of this earthquake in the Indian Ocean with devastation. 30-foot waves sweeping in across Sri Lanka, Thailand, Indonesia, the Indian Ocean. You see, we've forgotten, haven't we? You remember a year ago in northern Iran? In the city of Balm, 100,000 people lost their lives. Oh, it just goes from the screens, doesn't it? Many of them still living out in the open. We see wars and international conflict. And unless you know the final chapter, boy, you better eat and drink and be merry and just live your life because there's nothing else to hope for. But this is the final prospect. The tree of life. Notice the image again that's used. The tree of life which Adam and his descendants were excluded from when they sinned against God and were banished from paradise is now freely available I don't have time to look at every one of these images bearing fruit every month twelve fruits every month for the healing of the nations international conflict is finally resolved God's healing comes upon the whole of creation upon the whole of humanity. It's an amazing picture. And at the centre of this, God's kingdom is restored. That for which our Lord told us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom is finally restored. Again, I don't have time to look at it. It's a lovely picture here. The book of Genesis begins with a garden. The book of Revelation finishes with a garden city ruled over by the Lord God and His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is at the centre of it. And all of the citizens of this kingdom, those who bear His name, will see it and rejoice as they both serve Him and reign with Him, worshipping and rejoicing in His light. The darkness banished forever, forever and ever. This is the end. Nothing more. Only eternity the final prospect what will be and on the day after Christmas where our children's toys have already begun to break down and they're already talking about what they'll get for their birthdays and next Christmas and where the parents throw up their hands in frustration and say that's just children for you and yet we think 2005, maybe it'll happen, maybe I'll win the lottery maybe something will happen dramatically I'll get a better job, a better house, a different family whatever it may be that is not the final prospect, it will never satisfy only this prospect will satisfy and sustain you when the disasters come when war comes when conflict, persecution whatever may come if you know the end of the story you have hope. This is what will be. That is what we rejoice in now in anticipation of what will be. But sadly and tragically, it will not be the final prospect for everyone. For notice verses 10 to 15, the final state. When my parents were in their early 50s, um, I'm a, I was a missionary for many years, as many of you will know, as Wycliffe Bible translators. And some people know that my parents also worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators and they say to me, were you a missionary kid? No, I wasn't a missionary kid. They were missionary parents because I joined the organisation and when they were in their early 50s they left their home in Derbyshire where we'd lived all and they'd lived most of their lives and went to work for Wycliffe Bible Translators down in Buckinghamshire and they spent the rest of their working career there for 15 years. And after it they retired and went back home 
to our home church, our hometown, after being away for 15 years. And my father made what I think is a very perceptive comment. I need to make sure he doesn't get the tape of this, but anyway. Um, which I have observed myself as a pastor over the years. He said that resuming contact with all the friends they'd left 15 years ago and contacts and neighbours, his comment was this, that the character traits of the people they had known before were still the same but even more exaggerated. For example, the person who had a tendency to bitterness, 15 years of bitterness on, was even more embittered. The person who had a tendency to gossip was now an habitual gossip. The person who had the graces of Christ and was kind and gentle had become more kind and gentle. The person who was a humble servant within the church had become a more humble servant. You see, it's true of all of us. We are becoming what we will be. Either wrong or right. And this last chapter of Revelation warns us that what we finally become will be our final state, fixed irrevocably. And because the coming of Christ is near in God's timing, such things will stay as they are. Look at verse 10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. This seems very strange, doesn't it, that God should say this. Were you surprised when you read it? Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. That present state, he's saying, will determine your final destination, either inclusion in God's plans and in his eternity and in that glorious final heaven and earth restored, or exclusion. Notice the present tenses in verses 14, 15. Blessed are those who, who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who present tense practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murder of the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The only hope for real character change, essential character change, is the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used an image, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But there is an ongoing process taking place in our lives expressed by those present tenses. So, here we are at the end of 2004. I ask myself as I ask you, is that process taking place in your life? Are you more like Christ at the end of this year than you were at the beginning of this year? Are you being sanctified? Because if you are not, you are going in the opposite direction. There's no middle position. You don't suddenly arrive as a Christian and say, well, I've reached a certain stage as a Christian and I think I'll just settle for that. Because once you settle for it, the current of our society, let alone my own sinful nature, will sweep me backwards. Will drag me downstream. And what we are in this life, what we have done, verse 12, determines our eternal destiny. Our reward, which is inclusion in God's kingdom, or our punishment and exclusion from it. Michael Wilcox again comments helpfully. The final state is directly related to the present life. 
it will be a repayment to every man for what he has done here. And it is Christ's recompense since what he has done means really what he has done with Christ and what he has allowed Christ to do through him. That criterion, forgotten or ignored by millions, will be re-established on the day of judgment. So does this mean if you're sitting there this morning and you're feeling pretty bad at this point, does this mean that there is no hope for any change now? No, it is a warning that the return of Christ may be soon, will be soon, and unexpected, so soon and unexpected, that at that point there will be no further change, chance or change for repentance. I was thinking about just this morning as I was preparing and then switched on the news, you know, on all those luxury places on the beach at Phuket in Thailand. If you're a rich tourist, you get the best seats right in the front of the sea. And when the 30-foot wave comes in, you're the first one to be swept away and... You just don't know anything about it. You have no chance to change. But now in these verses, before the return of the king, there is still opportunity. For notice something, and I'm glad to turn from it from what I've just talked about, but I need to mention it to you in faithfulness to God's word. Now we turn to verse 17, the final invitation. After having said that, the spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now this is the best offer you will ever hear. This year, next year, or as long as you live. The most amazing free gift, described as the water of life. The gift of the water of life. Notice what it says. It is offered by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaks to our hearts and minds and conscience. That's why Jesus said, it's a good thing that I leave you to his disciples. It's recorded in the end of John's Gospel, about chapter 16. And he says, it's a good thing I go away because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit will not come. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us of those things and Jesus said, and he will speak of me. He will make me known. See, I have to be honest with you, friends. If if trying to change people's hearts and minds was a matter of my eloquence and study and learning and everything else, I would give up tomorrow and retire and buy my tropical fish shop and do something different. But it isn't, you see. It's, you notice what it says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Bride, of course, is the Church of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks to hearts and minds, invites people to come to Christ, but the Bride, the Church of God, is the, is the, is the voice that God has chosen to make this known. We have this treasure, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Oh, believe me. Most preachers know they're jars of clay. It's not by my door or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah, all verse 6. When God's word is preached, the Holy Spirit issues the invitation through the Spirit and the bride. And it is offered, notice what it says here, it is offered to whoever is thirsty. 
A promise of life-giving water. So that those who drink will never thirst again. That promise that we read at the beginning of the service that Bill read for us from Isaiah 55. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And the prophet goes on to say, why do you spend your money on what does not satisfy? Boy, that would be a great Christmas message, wouldn't it? (laughs) Why do you spend your money on what does not satisfy? Come to me, he says. And eat and drink. You remember what Jesus said to that woman of Samaria met at the well? He said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ offers to us satisfaction by placing His Spirit within us. His Holy Spirit wells up and overflows to people around about us. And yet this was only made possible through what Jesus did when he died on the cross to pay the price we could never pay so that we might have eternal life. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus cried on the cross, I am thirsty so that you and I need never thirst again. And now he graciously invites us to come and eat and drink. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. So today, again, if you are not a Christian this morning, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and only God knows your heart. There is an invitation to you. Notice what it says. Whoever is thirsty and whoever wishes. That may ruffle a few theological feathers, but I just simply say what it says there. Whoever is thirsty and whoever wishes. Whoever you are this morning, if you are thirsty, here is yet another invitation, another opportunity. Have you received the gift, the free gift that is offered to you? Or has another year gone by and you've still not responded? Or are you hoping for something better? I'm very aware of this in our society today. We live in a society of short-term offers. Have you noticed that? You know, maybe you got a new mobile phone for Christmas. You know, you only get the contract probably for a year because you know and hope that within a year there'll be an even better, more zany phone that's coming up next year. And so you think, I'm not going to commit you. I bet none of you have got 10-year phone contracts. Because you know and hope a better one will come along with a better offer or a better company. Listen, there will be no better offers in 2005 than this. There will be no better offers to humanity this side of eternity than this. Because what he offers is eternal life and you'll never thirst again. Are you hoping for something a better offer? If so, you will wait in vain for this last chapter also contains the final words. You notice that? Verses 18 and 19. Revelation 22, of course, is the final chapter of the final book of the Bible. And yes, the Bible is made up of 66 different books. 39 in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, 27 in the New Testament. And yet they have a coherent theme. Despite what rehashed views you might have heard last night on on, on channel 4 about, you know, who wrote the Bible. Of course human beings wrote the Bible, but men of God moved by God wrote the Bible. It is a coherent theme. It is the Word of God. And there is a unifying theme that runs throughout it. Previous generations, it was described as the three R's. Ruin, redemption, restoration. 
And restoration comes last. And so restoration is the final great theme of the book of Revelation. As we have seen after the last great battle, King Jesus, described as the root and offspring of David, both the ancestor and descendant of Israel's greatest king, establishes his eternal kingdom. There is the promise of a new heaven, a new earth, a new city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You'll see that in chapter 21. Don't have time to look at it. Read it when you go home. Don't wait till the funerals when we read it. It's too late then. The night is dispelled forever with the rising of Jesus, the morning star, and God's servants enjoy endless light and endless joy as they reign with him forever and ever. And after that revelation, there is nothing more to be said. There is nothing else hidden behind the curtain that you haven't seen already. These are the last words of revelation. This is the final authoritative word as the angel informs John. The angel said, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The prophets, those who speak God's word, may be human, but behind them is a divine author command, communicating perfectly and without error his message to the world. And God has spoken his final and reliable word. There is nothing else other than its final fulfillment. The six the things that must soon take place. All the predictions of the prophets concerning the first coming of Jesus have been full, fulfilled to the last detail. All that remains now are the prophecies that concern his second coming again. So in relation to human history and his plan of salvation, God has nothing more to say. That is his final revelation. And to reiterate this, there is a final warning. Not to add or take away. Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone that hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from the book of prophecy, God will take away from them his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which is described in this book. There have been and still are those who want to add to what God has said in his word further revelations which go beyond what is written. We read and hear many such things in other cults and other religions. And there are still those who want to take away from God's word what has been revealed and what has been recorded and written. But this we cannot do. For if we take away or add to God's word, we incur God's judgment in which the punishment fits the crime. These are the final words. So I wonder this morning, how do we respond to these words? Well, there is a litmus test. Whether you're able to pray heartily the last words of Revelation, which are the fifth final thing in this chapter, the final prayer, verses 20 to 21. You see, within every Christian... I would say this, the more, the more longer you've been a Christian, the longer you've walked with Christ, if you've continued by God's grace to walk with him day by day and to learn more of him and his word, there is an increased longing within you, especially as you get older, a longing for Christ's return. The Bible describes it as, it's an interesting word in Romans 8, it's the word to groan. It's an interesting word. It's a sort of word of deep emotion within you that you can't really describe. It is not to moan, Christian friends. To moan is human, to groan is divine. It is a groaning, a longing. You begin to see things as God sees them. 
You see the desperate wickedness of your own heart apart from God's grace. The terrible things which human beings do to each other and God's creation. And as the Apostle Paul puts it then, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment, imagine what the full, full price will be if this is the down payment. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8, 23. Something which even creation anticipates and groans and longs for. Were there no prospect like this, we would be filled with despair. Yet the promise of the Lord Jesus gives us future hope. Three times the Lord Jesus promises. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And when he says this, our response is to affirm the certainty of his coming, Amen, and to pray and cry out for it. That is our future hope. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The same prayer is used at the end of 1 Corinthians in its Aramaic form. Maranatha. Come, O Lord. As one commentator writes, the only remedy for all this massive misery is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not plead for it every time we hear the clock strike as another year goes by? And perhaps the only reason is because we are not ready for his coming. If he should come today, you may be lost eternally. And perhaps some of us are Christians, and if he were to return today, we would be ashamed of his coming, for we have unfinished business to do. Do it now while you can. And not one person living or who has ever lived would have any confidence on the day of judgment were it not for his first coming in mercy and love. So it's fitting that the whole book and the Bible concludes not just with a prayer for the future but a prayer for the present, our present need the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people as we sang in John Newton's great hymn it's grace, God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me it's grace that has brought me safe thus far it is grace that will lead us home however long it may be for us as individuals for this church for our world and so Revelation and we conclude by saying Amen which means that's it let it be that's sure well the best selling DVD of 2004 is The Return of the King it's a great film a great story but it's nothing more than that the story of Jesus is a real story a true story the return of the King the King of Kings the Lord of Lords I have no pictures to show you other than word pictures in the book of Revelation. What we do know is that every eye will see him, will see his glory. And his final word to our world is, I am coming soon. Now I know the critics look at it and say, oh, he said he was coming soon, and soon means soon, and he didn't come, and they were all disappointed, and so on. That is to look at soon, the word soon from a human perspective. Even at the end of the first century, probably, when Second Peter was written, or certainly by the third quarter of the first century, people were saying, where is the promise of his coming? Peter wrote, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So at the end of another year, I simply ask you, are you ready? Are you ready? Final story, some of you may know. In 1914, 
Ernest Shackleton, the great British explorer, set out on an Antarctic expedition. It was a disaster in many ways. They were among the ice floes for three years. Their ship was crushed by the ice and they lived on ice floes for 16 months. Finally, they came to an island called Elephant Island in the middle of nowhere. And Shackleton realized their only hope was to sail a boat across 800 miles of terrible sea to bring help. So he left his crew behind on Endurance Island, on Elephant Island, school, and made this amazing journey. If you've never read it, it's just an amazing journey. They arrived in South Georgia and they still had 17 miles to go to climb over the mountains to the other side, to the whaling station. Finally, in a state of almost total exhaustion, they arrived there and they finally warned the people and, they, and Shackleton got a boat and went back to rescue his crew. 105 days after leaving them, he finally arrived at Elephant Island. Huge icebergs blocked their way. But suddenly, as if by a miracle, I read, an avenue opened in the ice and Shackleton was able to get through. His men, ready and waiting, quick, quickly scrambled aboard. No sooner had the ship cleared the, the island than the ice crashed together behind them. Contemplating their narrow escape, the explorer said to his men, it was fortunate you were all packed and ready to go. They replied, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, he may come today. Should we not be ready? Travelling land, for he may come. 